Welcome to No More Risk Better, a Credit Sites podcast. I'm Winnie Caesar, the Global Head of Strategy. And I'm Zach Griffiths, the Credit Sites Senior Investment Grade Strategist. As strategists, we aim to make sense of the macro and the micro, highlighting opportunities and the risks facing the fixed income markets. As important as the macro call may be, we understand that credit investing at its core comes down to keen single name selection, and we at Credit Sites benefit from the expertise of our team of over 100 analysts across the US, Europe, and Asia. This podcast offers a look at the conversations that we have with our analysts on a regular basis. If you are an investment professional focused on the wide universe of fixed income, you'll want to give this podcast a listen. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Credit Sites podcast. My name is Winnie Caesar. I'm the Global Head of Strategy for Credit Sites. And today I am delighted to be joined by Andrew Mulder. He's the Senior European Utilities Analyst. Lots going on in his sector over the past 12 months or so with energy prices on the rise. We'll see if we're going to have a repeat of that in 2023. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks, Winnie. All right, Andrew, let's get right into it with our icebreaker question. I realize that we're now almost halfway through the year. I don't know how this has happened, but if you could have a sneak peek at any piece of economic credit market or sector specific data for the rest of this year, what would you be looking for and why? I mean, I suppose, you know, from your introduction, really, I think you covered that because it really would be power and gas prices because that's so integral to the sector. I mean, I think at the moment, European gas storage levels are running pretty high. I think we're at about 65% in Europe at the moment. And I've seen indications and scenarios that we, assuming supply is not disrupted, that we would probably get to about 90% by the 1st of October. So we look like we'd be, you know, in a good position with regards to winter supplies. But, you know, there's still the uncertainty of the weather. How will that develop? There's Russian deliveries, particularly you know, Russian LNG, I mean, we talk about LNG deliveries to Europe, but actually about 15% of the LNG that's coming into Europe at the moment is still coming from Russia. So there is still a reasonable amount of gas. That's about 20 BCM coming into Europe from Russia. And we're still getting pipeline deliveries as well. So those are two potential uncertainties that could change the situation. And I think the other thing which people normally talk about is sort of the demand from Asia. Well, I know we are expecting the Chinese economy to accelerate, and I think it has, but when I speak with the strategy team here, they're talking about risks being more to the downside. I think they're talking about GDP growth of about 5%, something like that, 5.2, but with risks to the downside. So that's quite positive from a European point of view, because if China accelerates much faster than that, then we're going to start seeing gas demand going into China. And I guess that means one of two things. It either means you don't get enough gas coming into Europe or much more likely the prices of gas in Europe have to rise significantly so that Europe attracts the gas rather than it going to Asia. So, you know, to come back to your original question, I think the one thing I'd really like to see is how are we going to see power and gas prices developing for the rest of the year? That's really the kind of, you know, crystal ball question that I would probably ask from a utility point of view. The real heart of the matter, I had no idea about the 15% of LNG still coming from Russia at this point. That seems like a pretty significant, you know, potential risk. Could that just get cut off? It's hard to know. I mean, some of the EU countries are pushing 
for restrictions on Russian LNG. But I think it's quite hard. It really sort of depends on how it gets here, who's shipping it, where has it gone since it came from Russia and how is it coming into the countries or coming into Europe? So yes, it's possible it could be cut off, but I think it would take sort of an EU effort and you'd also have to have willingness on behalf of the, the LNG importers as well. It's just a fascinating time in the world of utilities, which you generally don't think of as a super interesting sector, at least in the US, it tends to be a little bit sleepy and more defensive. What is your recommendation on European utilities for the sector and why are you positioned that way? Well, once again, you've put your finger on it. I've got a market perform view on the sector and it really is because it's viewed as a relatively stable and defensive sector. I mean, it trades tight. In Europe, the European utility index trades about 30 basis points inside the European IG corporate index. You know, and I think Governments have generally been supportive of the sector through what we've seen, you know, over the last year or so. There have been windfall taxes. There have been caps on inframarginal technologies. So that's kind of the generation technologies that set the marginal price. But even after all of these things, the sector has still come out pretty well. It's still performed much better than it would have done under normal, quote unquote, normal conditions. If you look back over the last month or two, the sector has certainly been extremely defensive. When we saw the market turbulence that happened with Silicon Valley Bank, with Credit Suisse, utilities were briefly very much in the sun and they outperformed everything. But now with that uncertainty perhaps reducing and the banks stabilizing, the financial sector stabilizing, we've started to see the utilities coming back much more in line, trading pretty much in line with the market. I think perhaps coming back a little bit to the first question you asked about what would you see from the crystal ball side? The thing I get clients are most worried about really is that we do get a return to the really much more volatile energy price environment that we saw last year. And if that happens, what might that mean for government intervention in the utility sector? That's kind of the big question. I mean, it's not sort of my central scenario that that would happen, but last year, we saw some intervention in the markets, but nothing that really hurt the utilities. The governments generally realized, I think, that the utilities weren't the cause of the problem. They were so simply sort of facilitating, you know, that they were trying to ensure that there was security of supply in the markets and they were carrying on. But I think if the, something happens next year, or rather this year, governments have already spent a lot of money supporting consumers in through the energy crisis. And so if we had a similar situation emerging this year, there is the possibility, I think, that you could see governments doing things that perhaps might be more harmful for the utilities. It's not my central scenario, as I say, but, you know, I think that's probably the, the worry that most clients have. And, and we have seen that played out in EDF this year, which is kind of, or last year rather, which is one specific example of where a government did act in a way that was very detrimental to the utility. EDF reported, I think it was a 5 billion EBITDA loss last year in 2022, and that was the result of government action. We've not seen it anywhere else. And as I say, governments have generally been pretty supportive and the sector really has held up pretty well. So market performed view overall for me. That makes sense. So the EDF situation, was that just a case in which EDF was not allowed to fully pass through its higher energy costs onto the end consumer? Yeah, there were a couple of situations. 
uh, EDF. I mean, what you say is actually one of the main reasons. Normally in France, there is a formula for calculating the, the power price because the domestic residential customer power price is still regulated in France. And EDF was not allowed to increase prices. I think they were limited to a, I think it was a 4% increase. So they couldn't actually increase prices as much as they would need to. So that was one source. The second thing was that EDF is having a lot of problems with its nuclear reactors at the moment. So output was down in 2022. If you look back, I don't know, five, six years or so, EDF was producing in nuclear power in France, about 400 to 420 terawatt hours. Last year, they produced about 280 terawatt hour. So it is a massive difference. And that was also an issue with, in terms of security of supply in Europe, because normally France is a big exporter of power to the rest of Europe, which it really didn't do last year at all. I mean, so not only did he, could EDF not pass on the higher prices to customers, but it also needed to go into the market and buy back power for customers that needed to supply, but where it wasn't producing it with its own generation. And of course, power prices were really high last year. So it was a very difficult situation for them. So Andrew, you mentioned looking for whether you're going to see a spike in energy prices in the second half of this year with storage in seemingly good shape heading into kind of the summer months. Are there any early signals that you can tell people about that you might be watching for a kind of O moment or an indicator of what's to come? I mean, I guess one thing you'd be looking at would be sort of where gas prices are going, you know, what the market is indicating in terms of the supply market going forward. But it actually looks pretty benign in terms of gas prices at the moment, even sort of forward prices. I mean, prices are not back to where they were before that, but they're probably sort of two times what they were before, but they're nowhere near what we were seeing last summer. I mean, I was actually looking at power prices before I came on the call. And on average now, we're talking about power prices in Europe between sort of 90 and 100 euros per megawatt hour. Normal year, you would see maybe around 50, 60 euros per megawatt hour. So we're still at sort of twice the normal level. But last year, they reached peaks of around sort of seven, 800 euros per megawatt hour. So we, we've certainly seen prices coming down sort of significantly. And the market actually seems pretty stable. And I guess, you know, really you'd be starting to, what, what tends to drive it at this stage in the, is kind of news flow around interconnectors and things like that. If perhaps the UK was to announce, for instance, a couple of years ago, we had a fire on IFA2, which is the interconnector between the UK and France. And that meant that that interconnector was down. And so then power prices started to spike. So you'd need to be listening to whether anything like that's happening. If EDF, for instance, it's currently thinking about nuclear output between 300 and 330 terawatt hours per year, if that got a problem and they had to downgrade it to say 250 to 280, that's going to have a knock-on impact in terms of power prices in Europe. And then you're going to start seeing prices come up. So it's really a question of sort of looking at the forward markets. Do we think, what is the market expectations for supply? I suppose if Russia escalated its actions in Ukraine then clearly that could be some indication that they may stop supplying gas to Europe. But we haven't seen them yet totally cease supplies to Europe, as I mentioned with LNG. And there's also still some pipeline gas coming to Europe, not through Nord Stream, obviously, but there is still some gas coming through Turkmenistan, I think it is. 
that's super helpful. So let's pivot the conversation a little bit and talk about the primary market. Are you expecting to see new issue supply in the next six to 12 months in the utility sector? I'm a little less familiar with the kind of structural new issue on the European side. I know that the U.S. utilities are just kind of consistent and regular issuers in the primary market. Is that the same in Europe? And what are your expectations? Yeah, it is the same in Europe, really. I mean, utilities is a relatively capital intensive sector. So all issuance in the utility sector is always going to be high relative to what you get in other sectors. But having said that, last year was actually, despite the uncertainty in the markets, in the energy markets, was a very big year for utility issuance. We saw 82 billion of utility bonds last year. You know, a normal year, probably more like 50 to 60. So I think we've seen a lot of issuance last year. There's been a lot of pre-financing done at the end of last year. I think so far this year, we've seen about 30 billion of issuance. I do expect there will be more issuance this year, but I'm not thinking it's going to be up as high as, as 80, 82. I think probably the big swing factor in the utility issuance is going to be EDF. As I said, EDF last year reported a loss and its net debt increased from, I think, 41 billion to about 62 billion. Now that's primarily being financed by bank loans, short-term bank loans. And that's going to have to be refinanced in the market, which I think is one of the reasons we saw EDF in the US market just last week. But if you looked at that, they paid up pretty highly to do that. I think they paid about 60, 70 basis points over secondaries, which in my opinion was crazy. I'm not really sure why they felt they wanted to go to the US, but I think the, the simple fact with them is that they've got so much they want to issue that they just want to have as much diversification as they possibly can. So they're issuing in the U.S. market. They're, they're going to issue in euros for sure. Um, you know, I guess we could see they're going to, they issued some in Canadian dollars. We could see some Australian dollar. We're going to see some sterling from EDF. So EDF is a big swing factor, which could potentially push it back up towards the 80 billion level. But I think what we're also seeing in the utility sector is much more of what they call asset rotation, where they're selling one asset to finance another. And that has really become a much bigger issue, not an issue, but much bigger happening, I guess, in the European utility sector. And with that, you don't see as much issuance as you might. I mean, last year, a big issuer was Italian utility NL. They issued 12 billion last year. This year, they have a 12 billion disposal program. So they're aiming to sell 12 billion of assets this year. So they're probably not going to come back to the market in massive size this year. I think they've already issued about 3 billion. I'd be surprised if they do much more. So one of the biggest issuers from last year is not probably going to be present to anything like the same degree this year. So, you know, really coming back to that, the question, I think 82 billion last year, I don't think it's going to be as high this year, but utilities are a sector that is capital intensive that does need to issue. And, you know, I think EDF could be a big swing factor that may push that number up more towards the 80 billion level. Yeah, absolutely. That makes a ton of sense. And your comments on EDF accessing the U.S. and potentially other markets, I think we're seeing that with other very large issuers. I know our telco analysts are saying that some of their companies are actually looking at the ABS markets as another opportunity okay. to raise cash just because at this point, you need a, a much wider spectrum of, you know, where is the pool of capital? What is available to yeah. me? Rather than just always going to your home market, for sure. 
I know the hybrids take up a pretty significant chunk of the utility market as well. Do you want to touch on kind of trends in hybrid issuance and redemption, refinancing? What's going yeah. on with hybrids right now? I mean, the utilities were really the first corporate sector that issued hybrid bonds. I mean, in Europe, there was some sort of issue back in 2005, but then it really sort of kicked off around 2010, 2012, 2015 or so. Mainly, I guess, as the rating agencies clarified how they were actually going to treat these and what things needed to be done in order to qualify for the equity content that they get. Of course, the big issue has been sort of refinancing risk here. I mean, you know, I'm sure most of the people listening to the podcast know that normally the hybrids reset at sort of the first call date or possibly sort of three months after the first potential call date. And typically, if those hybrids are not called at the first call date, they will lose equity credit, that one hybrid. And if the hybrid is called but not refinanced, then all of the other hybrids could potentially lose equity credit, at least with S&P. And this has been the issue that's been facing the sector, because when you look at the, the resets on the, the hybrid coupon, you might see the reset would be 6%. But if they're going to issue another hybrid to refinance, the cost of refinancing is going to be 7.5% or 8%. So they've got to kind of look at the decision and say, do I refinance or do I just leave it out and let the coupon reset? Now, there's a big reputational issue around this as well. And as I said earlier in the last answer about the debt, utilities are big issuers going to the market. And... What we tend to see in Europe, I'm not sure if it's the same in the US, is that most of the people that buy the hybrid bonds are the same people who buy the senior debt, but they just want a better yield. So if you upset the hybrid bondholders, you're going to upset the senior bondholders as well. And then when you're going to come back to the market again, yeah, you'll get the deal done, but you might have to pay up a bit more than you would have had to before. So for the utilities, it's been a really, you know, the reputational issue is really important. And so far, we haven't seen any of the utilities extend their hybrids at all. And I don't expect they will. I mean, I talked about EDF earlier. EDF was a, a, was a good example. EDF had a dollar hybrid with a first call date in January 2023. And they refinanced that in the market. They had to pay up for it. They paid over 7%, I think it was. And that was a lot more than the existing hybrid was out there. But they were prepared to do that. And in fact, demand was really strong and it priced inside the secondary curve. But they paid up to do that rather than not issue the hybrid bond and upset the market. So, so far, all of the utilities that have hybrids that reach a call date in this year have refinanced, yeah, have reissued really. Or in one case, Natagy decided that it didn't want to refinance, that it didn't need to, that it just called the bond and didn't replace it lost equity credit on all its hybrids. But Natagy is a company that operates in the gas market. So Natagy had a fantastic year last year. So they were overflowing with cash. So they just decided it doesn't really matter that we've lost equity credit on these bonds. We can afford to do that. We haven't seen that much issuance in the hybrid market. I mean, we've seen a few utilities come to the market. But the thing with the refinancing is that under the S&P methodology, you can reduce your amount of outstanding hybrids by 10% in any one year, subject to a maximum 25% over 10 years. So that's something that EDF has taken advantage of when they came to their refinancing. 
they reduced their overall hybrid volume. So the actual refinancing they had to do was a lot smaller than the bonds they were calling. So will we see hybrid issues? I think it's hard to know if we're going to see much more hybrid issuance with interest rates as high as they are. You know, over the last five years, companies have been issuing hybrids at two, three, four percent. Now they'd have to be issuing them at six and a half or seven percent or something like that. So I'm not sure if there's not a refinancing decision there, whether we're going to see new hybrids coming to the market, but it is a big part of the utility market. A lot of the utilities issue hybrids. In fact, I think in terms of single sectors, utilities are probably the biggest single sector of hybrid issuers in the corporate market. That is absolutely fascinating. I was, when I started my career, I was in the utility and power group in investment banking in the U.S. Uh, and I remember we started pitching retail hybrids. I'm like, what, what is this? What am I pitching? What, what exactly is this? So that was probably the most helpful explanation that I've had, you know, a solid 13 years later, if only you had been in my life before. The reputational risk aspect is also really interesting. I don't know if you've seen, we've done some work on the three-year non-call one structure that's become very popular in the U.S. And when you talk to different analysts on the team, there are varying opinions about whether this is a good thing because in general, the issuers are paying up a bit in terms of new issue concession to have that callability. Or is this just a way that Someone is going to have a one-year bond that's called and you're immediately refied and taken away if if rates go lower next year. So there's been a little bit of a healthy debate. My kind of angle was a lot of these companies are pretty serial issuers in the market. So they probably can't go around making their entire investor base mad at them. So yes, we'll we'll see what happens next. Yes. Yes, we will. So on that... What are you worried about in the world of utilities? It feels like there's a lot to worry about, but what kind of keeps you up at night when you're thinking about your sector recommendation? I think for me, it's kind of almost the same thing that's been going on for the last five years or so. And that's really the disruptive change that you've got because of the energy transition that's going through. I mean, I started looking at the sector more than 25 years ago. God, And then it was a much simpler sector. 20 years ago, you had the dash for gas where everyone was trying to build gas-fired power plants. You had sort of simple one-way transmission systems, you know, and I can remember talking to companies when renewables first started coming out and utilities didn't want to touch them. As far as they were concerned, that was just a financial play. The only way that worked was if you got a subsidy. But now that that's all changed. So Renewable wind and solar, in my opinion, they're almost on a race to the bottom in terms of how much they're, they're going to cost, and, or not so how much they're going to cost, but how much the power price is going to be that's attached to them. Conventional thermal plant is already being closed or it's being phased out. Gas is very much seen as a transition fuel, which can hopefully be replaced by clean hydrogen. Everyone's talking about hydrogen, but the economics around hydrogen just don't work at the moment. We've had European utilities, and I don't know if it's the same with the US utilities, talking about building new gas plant that's hydrogen ready so that you can actually use hydrogen as a fuel to power the gas plant to generate electricity. But the power price you would need to charge in order to make that economic means it just doesn't work at the moment. So I think that really is the key thing that the utilities have to deal with is how they're going to negotiate through the energy transition. 
I mean, undoubtedly, the future is renewables, but then you've got high inflation in the market at the moment. You've got supply chain bottlenecks, and all of these things are eating away at the returns that these companies earn. And you've also had uh, sort of delays in terms of permitting. Permitting is a huge issue, you know, and that is slowing the deployment of these sort of technologies. You know, I think in the US, you've got the Inflation Reduction Act, and that makes the US realistically speaking, a much more attractive market for renewable developers than anything we've got in Europe at the moment. We've had the EU talking about accelerating the deployment of renewables, but they haven't really done much yet. It's all talk and proposals without any firm um, action. We did see some of the support at the start of COVID when there was a 740 billion program, which was great, but we haven't seen anything beyond that. And what you're really seeing is that a lot of the European utilities that are looking at the US as an area for both onshore and offshore wind growth, they're looking at solar in the US. And I think there's a danger that Europe sort of loses out a little bit on this because the US environment is a lot more attractive. Now, whether that means you need to do it with the US partner in order to sort of be more au fait with the regulations and everything else you, you need to do over there, I'm not sure. But I think that's kind of the thing that the utilities really need to grapple with now how they're going to go through the energy transition and also what sort of returns they're going to get. Renewable developers will tell you that returns need to increase in order to incentivize more investment in there, but it's just not happening at the moment. And I think that this is a real worry going forward. I mean, one of the companies I look at is Orsted, which is the largest offshore developer in the world. And on every investor call they ask, analysts ask, and they've been asking for the last two years. What's happening with your returns? How are they changing going forward? And they're still targeting WAC plus 100 to 300 basis points, but I'm just not sure how sustainable that is going forward. It's not a problem that's going to hit them immediately because within a portfolio, you can have one low return project if you've got 10 good return projects. But five years time, it might be tricky. And the lead times in Europe are ridiculous. When you're building an offshore wind farm, you might bid for it in 2017 and you don't take final investment decision until 2024 and it doesn't come online until 2027. When you're in an inflationary environment, how can you bid to something in 2017 and expect that those prices are still competitive in 2024 when you take the final decision? It's a difficult issue that they all have to deal with, I think. I mean, that's the big thing, the energy transition. Yeah. I mean, everyone on the U.S. side is trying to figure out the energy transition as well. And I think that there's probably not as much of a fluid understanding of the Inflation Reduction Act and just how helpful it will be for a lot of the U.S. utilities in pursuing some of these endeavors. Now, we'll see with the U.S. debt ceiling negotiation, Republicans have tried to unwind some of those tax credits. So we'll, we'll see what happens there. But it's interesting to hear that the European utility side is a little bit caught off sides because whenever I think about kind of U.S. versus Europe, I always think, oh, Europe is much more focused on climate change and decarbonization and all of these things, whereas it seems like maybe that might be the talk, but the realities of the situation are um, very different. Well, I think if I'd gone back two or three years, I would certainly agree with that, that Europe was further advanced than the U.S. We were certainly much further advanced in terms of ESG, and in terms of thinking about climate change and climate mitigation, and there was a lot more progress in terms of renewables. It was much faster development in Europe than it was in the US. But I think 
from what I've heard, the, the Inflation Reduction Act has really changed that dynamic, I think. And now there's a lot more focus on the U.S. being a market that you want to get into. I mean, the U.S. has some issues, certainly in terms of offshore wind, because I think when you look at something like California, which is potentially a very green state, the problem there is that the ocean floor just drops off like a cliff. So you can't really build offshore wind very far from the shore you're going to have to have floating wind there and floating wind is a developing technology. And so that might sort of stall it a little bit in terms of sort of West coast development, but on the East coast around sort of New York, New England, that way, it, it seems to be progressing quite quickly. It's fascinating. I'm very interested to see how all these things unfold over the next decade. So let's talk about recommendations, some of your picks, maybe a pan, carry trade. What are you really focused on at the company level? I mean, probably my top pick in terms of the European utilities is NL, which is the Italian utility. I mean, I've been banging the table on NL for months. The problem with NL, it's not a problem, but the reality with NL is that it's an Italian utility. And so you've got the Italian risk around it. You know, I certainly know that I spoke with a lot of U.S. investors when EDF came to the market. And if you look in the dollar market, EDF and NL, NL actually trades outside EDF. I mean, and that's just wrong, in my opinion. And a lot of the U.S. investors were saying to me, you know, I'm not prepared to buy EDF unless it trades wide of NL. And that's actually what happened with the new issue. It did trade wide of NL. But the Italian risk makes NL wider. I think there's a chance there that we could see some spread catalyst that could move the name tighter because they've talked. One of the big concerns with NL has been the amount of debt that it has. It's got about 60 billion of debt. And now they've got this asset disposal program, which is 22 billion or 20 billion asset disposal program of which they're supposed to do 12 billion this year. So if that happens and their debt starts reducing significantly, I think that could be a catalyst that would move the name tighter. And I certainly like NL from a fundamental perspective. They are really heavily focused on networks and renewables, and they come from a history of being a relatively dirty generator in Italy. I mean, they're closing coal capacity. They've closed coal capacity that they've had in other countries as well. They really are at the forefront of the energy transitions, harking back to my earlier answers. And I like NL. I think it's a good company. It's well-managed. One small uncertainty is that the current Italian government was not particularly favorably disposed towards the previous CEO. And so when his mandate expired, they have proposed a new CEO for the company. So you have a new CEO, but I think two positive things there is that NL is already very established as a renewable developer and a networks company. And so I don't see that being changed easily. The other positive to take from it is that the guy they've appointed is not a civil servant. He's a utility guy. He's been in the utility sector before. He was the CEO of Turner, which is the electricity transmission system operator and owner in Italy. So he knows the sector well. So I'm quite optimistic that we're not going to see any major changes there in terms of the strategy. And I think it trades wide, probably because of the Italian risk, but that there's a potential catalyst in terms of the asset disposals that they might achieve. In terms of PANs, most of the names in the sector I feel relatively comfortable with. One name I probably would highlight, although some clients disagree with me, but one name I would highlight would be Natagy. Natagy is a Spanish gas distribution company. And I mentioned to you before that Natagy actually didn't call its hybrid because it was overflowing with cash because of the gas situation. And I mean, that's kind of the counter argument to Natagy. It consistently does develop positive cash flow. 
which is great when you're looking at a company in the debt sector. But my problem with Natergy is that it doesn't seem to have a clear strategy. It's flip-flop from one strategy to another over the last few years. The last thing it was proposing was to split the company into two, which from what I understand was actually perhaps a strategy that was favored by some of the uh, financial shareholders that they had. There's a couple of big sort of infrastructure funds, shareholders, and they both own about 20%. And I think they were pushing for a split of the business. So Natty came out with this big strategy to split the business. Then we had the energy crisis. The Spanish government said, no, you're not doing it because we want your situation in terms of the gas market in Spain means that we think energy security and security of supply would be at risk if we split the two businesses or split it into two businesses. So that's now on hold. So they don't really have a strategy. The next Spanish election is at the end of this year. So whether they're going to split the company is probably not going to be clarified until whichever government gets in at the end of this year, and then they decide what to do next year. So there's no real strategy, I don't feel. In addition, the company's very equity focused, very focused on dividends, very focused on growing the dividend, on pleasing the shareholders. And I think that debt holders are just kind of a secondary consideration that kind of the rating goes where it, wherever it does, as long as we satisfy the equity holders. So I'm not particularly keen on Natergy. As I say, it did have a good year last year and it does trade relatively tight, but it wouldn't be a name I would be holding. I think that probably will move wider. And as I say, they seem to be in a bit of a strategic vacuum and they really need to decide on something. Well, as a strategist, I do not like the idea of a strategic vacuum. So it makes sense to me. In terms of carry trade, I mean, with all the uncertainties around it, I like the EDF hybrid bonds. If you look at them sort of on a first call basis, those with the first call about sort of four, four and a half years, they're offering about 8% yield, 8.5% yield. You know, so to me, that, that sounds like a great deal. I mean, EDF is, I won't say it's a solid investment grade name, but it's 100% state-owned now by the French government. So you've got some level of at least implied support there. Clients ask me sort of, what's the downside? I mean, why don't, what if they don't call the hybrid? I mean, I just don't think that's going to happen. EDF has a huge investment program that they need to do. France is talking about building six new nuclear reactors in France. And on top of that, possibly another eight after that. So there's a lot of investment required. When you're requiring a lot of investment, hybrids are a good way to do that because they allow you to the equity credit, half of it's treated as equity by the racing agencies. So that's good. So I think there's quite a compelling case for them keeping hybrids within the capital structure. And if you're going to do that, you come back to the earlier question about making sure you're keeping investors on side, reputational risk, and so on. So I think hybrids will probably be in the capital structure for the foreseeable future, and they will be called as, an, as they come up. The other alternative is that with the French state ownership, the French government just says, these things are really expensive debt. Why is a state-owned company paying 8% to issue debt? That's ridiculous. We don't want these in the capital structure. But if they say that and they don't want them in the capital structure, what are they going to do? Either they tender for them or else they call them at the first call date. And if you don't like the tender price, you just hold on to it because you know they're going to call it at the first call date to get rid of the thing. So I don't really think there's as a downside there. I say, having said that, I'm just going to say the possible downside is that they could be very volatile because if EDF was to come out and say, we're cutting our nuclear output expectation to 250 terawatt hours per year. Those bonds are going to move wider, 100 basis points wider. So you can have the volatility there. That's why I would say 
a good carry trade if you can buy it now and hold it to the call date then i think you're getting eight percent eight and a half percent that that sounds like a good deal to me that sounds very reasonable to me i mean i bought one month t-bills at 5.3 percent. i feel like there's more risk of the u.s government default at this point so we'll see what happens for the next couple of weeks so let's wrap it up with words of wisdom. I know management teams absolutely love it when financial analysts are trying to give them recommendations and advice. But if you could get a management team in the utility sector to listen, what would you say? What are your words of advice in navigating the current economic and market environments? I mean, I did do that once, actually. A few years back, a management team did ask me to come and present to their senior management. And before I went into the room, they said to me, look, you know the market's quite difficult at the moment. We're going to have to cut a lot of staff. We want you to go in and really hammer that message forward to say, you know, this is going to be really difficult. You need to be prepared to make cuts and think about improving efficiency. So I, I have done something similar before, but as we are at the moment in the market, I actually think managements are doing a pretty good job. Strategies are mostly concentrating on the things that are important, sort of renewables and networks, which play into the whole energy transition theme, you know, and you talk about inflation and costs like that, but a lot of the network regulation takes inflation into account. Your revenues are linked to inflation. A lot of the renewable the generation has inflation linked tariffs in terms of what they receive for that power. So they are insulated from that in some way going forward. So I think they're actually doing pretty good. If I was to say anything to management, it would be to not be complacent because, you know, I think they weathered the energy crisis really well. And as I said, many had a record year in 2022. And I think 2023 is also likely to be good with power prices, not back at normal, levels, still being high. Not as good as 2022, but still good. So I would say to companies, you've done very well. Don't just sort of sit back on your laurels. The utility landscape, it's changing. Managements need to make sure they can adapt to that change and sort of make sure they're rigorously watching costs. And I think that's really important in terms of the inflationary environment. When you're building new plant, as I mentioned with Orsted and the renewables side, you need to make sure you're being as efficient as possible. And I think probably the other thing I'd say to them is, if you can, try to look at your research and development budget, because with everything changing really quickly, there are lots of emerging technologies and you really don't want to be left behind. I'm thinking about things like, well, there's floating wind for sure. There's hydrogen, which we've talked about already. There's small modular reactors, which may sort of bring in a new nuclear renaissance. I'm not sure, but they need to make sure they're putting in enough effort, I think, into research and development, just to make sure that, you know, the technology that they're using matches their ambitions. It's something that I think more managements need to be conscious of, because I don't really think R&D is something that utilities really talk about very much, but it's certainly been a big factor in the development of the wind industry. You know, I mentioned earlier how some companies were bidding, you know, in 2017 for projects that they were going to commission in 2025 or something. And when those companies were bidding, they were speaking with a lot of the wind development, the actual investors and the turbine manufacturers and saying, well, what kind of turbines will you have in place by the time we have to take final investment decision? That's the kind of thing you need to know. And they were pretty much betting on the idea that the turbines would be 15 megawatts by the time they had to take an investment decision. And EMBW has just taken the decision on Hidrite, which is a big offshore wind farm. And sure enough, they're building it with 15 megawatt turbines. 
but the bid they put in when they put that in in 2017 the normal size was kind of seven eight ten megawatts significantly smaller so you need to make sure you're sort of up on the latest research and development i think in order to make sure that you can perhaps realize the best efficiencies and deliver the best product at the best price that is great andrew thank you so much for joining me this has been a delight i've learned a lot about European utilities, and I know our listeners will as well. I hope everyone enjoyed. Thank you. Thanks, everyone. Credit sites disclaimer. All price references correspond to the date of this recording. This podcast should not be copied, distributed, or reproduced in whole or in part. Neither credit sites nor its affiliates makes any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of any information contained in this podcast. Credit Sites is not providing investment, legal, accounting, or tax advice, is not providing research or making any recommendations, nor is Credit Sites offering or soliciting any transaction with respect to the purchase or sale of any security. The receipt by this listener of this podcast is not the giving of advice by Credit Sites or its affiliates.